17. But we're actually going to begin back in chapter 5, verses 9 through 14. We've read it twice last week, and it is worth looking at once more. Because in these verses are doxologies and praises that are sung to the worthy Lamb. And in them He is described as a conqueror, as a judge, as a king, and as a redeemer of His people. He alone is qualified to break the seals and carry out His Father's will in the world. And because He is supreme, because He is trustworthy, because He is God, we, His people, like Job, can trust Him in our trials. So let me read again this morning, chapter 5, 9 through 14, before we get to chapter 6. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And they fell down, the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the glimpse into the heavenly places where the angels sing day and night, holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. And I pray, Lord, that we would remember as we work through this book, this book of Your Word that You gave to us to bless us and intend for us to understand that, Lord, in it all and over it all is the Holy Lamb of God, Your Son, who You sent into the world to ransom a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Thank You, Father, for Your great wisdom. Thank You for sending Him. Thank You for Your Son who carried it out and for Your Spirit who makes application of Your work in our lives, who regenerates us and makes us born again. Thank You, Lord. For you have done everything necessary to redeem and save your people. And I pray, Lord, that we would remember what you have done and come with thankful hearts and that we would trust you in all things. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning and help us to hear. For, Lord, we are often dull of hearing and our hearts slow to receive. I pray, Lord, that you would quicken us this morning and enliven us to hear and to believe and to understand, and not just to hear and believe and understand, but to live accordingly to your word. I pray that you would help me to preach, Lord. There is nothing in me. There is no wisdom in me. But there is in you. Lord, you know what your people need. 
you know how your name will be glorified. And Lord, I pray that you would glorify your name this morning through the preaching of your word. And it's in your name we pray. And it's in your name we hope. Amen. Have you ever been disappointed before? Most of you have. Everyone is eventually. But there are certain disappointments that really stand out, aren't there? Your hope was so high, your anticipation of what was coming was so strong that when it didn't happen, whatever it was, you were crushed. Maybe it was when you were a child and Christmas came around and the toy that you were asking for wasn't under the tree and you remember it to this day. Or maybe you were a teenager and you finally worked out the courage to go and ask this young lady out and you were rejected. Maybe you studied hard for an exam only to find out that you failed. Or you thought you aced a a job interview. It was a job you wanted. It was your dream job. But then they never called back. It's disappointment. And we're all familiar with it, aren't we? But do you know why people are disappointed? You know what is at the root of disappointment when it comes? It's expectations that are unfulfilled. Now we expect things. We envision our lives to go a certain direction, but life has other plans. It's not really life that has other plans for us, is it? We know that it's not some random force at work called life that's directing things. It is God who had other plans for our lives. And the reason in almost every instance we are disappointed, it's because our expectations for our lives and God's expectations for our lives were different. They didn't line up. We wanted things to go one way, but God, in His eternal and infinite wisdom, decreed they go another. Now, why do I bring this up here? Why do I bring that up in the middle of Revelation 5 and 6? I bring it up because here there is a great opportunity for God's people to be disappointed. The only way to avoid that disappointment is by having our expectations for our lives aligned with God's eternal plan, a plan that will soon be unsealed. And that plan may mean that we are ordained to go through things that we would rather not endure. It begins with the scroll being taken by the conquering, triumphant, sovereign, slain lamb And in the end of chapter 5, the scroll is about to be opened. And in the end of chapter 5, the language is language of jubilee. You remember in the Old Testament, the law was that every 50 years in Israel, all of the slaves would be set free and all of the debts would be forgiven. And it was to be a time of liberty and a time of prosperity and great celebration unto the Lord. And here in the end of chapter 5, given all of the praise going up in the heavens when that scroll is taken up out of the hand of the Ancient of Days by the root of David, we expect no less a celebration to begin. 
Now that Christ has inaugurated his kingdom, now that he is going to be carrying out the plans of God, the atmosphere in the heavens is one of great anticipation. There will be a time coming of celebration that the people of God have never up until this point known. What do the praises that are lifted up say? We've been ransomed by the Lamb. We're forgiven. We're free. And not only free, but we have received a kingdom just like Him. People from all over the world, from every walk of life, are there before the Lord Jesus and we will reign with Him on the earth. That's verses 9 and 10. In verse 12, all authority and power and wisdom and wealth and might Everything is given to Christ for the purpose of carrying out the plan of God. You read that and you say, surely the triumph of God's people is coming soon. Then in verses 13 and 14, all of heaven affirms it. They fall down in worship and you get the picture of none opposing the Lion of Judah. Nobody stands against Him. That's, the, that's what you have at the end of chapter 5. What you see before the opening of the seals in heaven is everything in heaven and everything on earth and everything under the earth lying prostrate before the Lamb. Seems like we're moving to a glorious climax, doesn't it? And in the excitement and in all of the anticipation, it's easy to forget what this event actually is. Because it's not the completion of the kingdom of God when the new heavens and the new earth come and all of these things are fulfilled. When the Lamb takes the scroll and breaks its seals, it marks the inauguration of that kingdom. A kingdom that begins in the church. A kingdom that begins in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And what follows in chapter 6 and 7 is not specifically the end though there is a final judgment in the sixth seal. But this is a picture of what life will be like in the kingdom of God. And given what we've just seen, we anticipate it being glorious. This is only amplified what we read in the beginning of chapter 6 when the first seal is broken, verses 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. John looks, and a seal is broken. It's broken by the land. The anticipation is growing. And when the seal breaks, one of the angels Thunders come, and behold, there before John is a white horse whose rider has a crown on his head, and he's armed for battle, and he comes out conquering, and he has come to conquer. Well, who could this be besides the Lord Jesus Christ? All throughout the book of Revelation, the one who comes conquering is the Lord Jesus. All throughout the book. In Psalm 45, it describes the Messianic king who comes on his horse, who defeats his enemies with his arrows, riding victorious. We've just read about his inauguration as the king and conqueror in chapter 5, 5. In Revelation 14, 14, the Son of Man again comes riding on a white cloud, weapon in hand, ready to wage war against his foes. There too, he's commanded by an angel to do something. 
In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the crowned rider wading into battle is clearly identified as the Lord Jesus. White is used throughout the entire book of Revelation 14 times, and without exception, every time it refers to the holiness of God. Now, this white rider on the horse is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is inaugurated as king. Now he is riding out from heaven to conquer, to advance his kingdom from one end of the earth to the other. What follows describes the conquering of that kingdom, describes what will happen as that kingdom advances. Verses 3 through 9. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider was named Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Well, this is not the triumph you're expecting, is it? The Lamb unseals the scroll. He comes forward to lead His people to conquer. But the picture isn't one of eternal bliss. It's one of slaying and of poverty and of death. It doesn't look like a blessing, does it? It looks like curses. It doesn't look like success. It looks like a failure. What, you know, what, kind of, what kind of victory is this? You wonder, where is Christ leading His church? Where is He taking His people? It's a somber picture, isn't it? We will not always see the kind of success that we want to see. It reminds us of that. We won't always see the peace we want to see. Instead, we have to go wherever the Lord leads us and be willing to follow, even if it's through places we would never choose to go on our own. And the Lord is tempering our expectations by reminding us of something He has said over and over and over in various ways. That the glory is in heaven and that the misery is here on earth. That's the picture being presented here. This time, this life in this world while we live here in Christ's name, following Him, this will not be the time for prosperity and for peace for God's people. That comes later. Right now is our tribulation and our time of trouble. And remember what the scroll itself represents. It's the unfolding of God's plan. It begins with Christ the conqueror. And he is and He will be the champion. But here and now is the age of the church. And history confirms this. In this time, there will be trouble. And that trouble is depicted by three riders from the three next seals. One thing they have all in common is they're all sent by God. They're not random. These are not 
unrestrained instruments of destruction. They are coming at the Lord's behest and they are totally constrained and controlled by Him. In fact, in Zechariah 6, a place in the Old Testament, you find another four horsemen similar, similarly colored. And all of them have come to do the will of the Lord. Now the first is a red horse. It's given a sword, it takes peace, and it leads people to slay one another. And it would be easy to read this and say, obviously, this is warfare. Look at the destruction and the devastation that war brings. We see it all the time. People killing one another. What, 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 what could be that this rider is bringing? Yeah, well, it could be war. But then again, why does the fourth horseman bring the same? The fourth horseman, horseman comes bringing war. It is possible that this horseman is not a harbinger of warfare on the earth. And if you look at the language closely, it presents a different picture. The red horse represents the slaying, not of people all over the world in war, but of God's people through persecution. Following the conquering Lamb who brings people from every tribe and tongue and nation out of the world and into Himself, what comes immediately after that is persecution. When you say, how could this horseman come in the service to the Lord? Jesus tells us in Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And what follows is a description of what that sword does in Matthew 10. It cleaves between the closest of family relations. Brother will turn against brother, father against son, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. They will be hated by all for my namesake, Jesus tells them. And so this fiery red horse that comes is carrying out the purpose of Christ described in Matthew. He is taking peace and bringing a sword. And that word slay, that's not the one that's normally used for killing. It's the word used in Scripture over and over again to describe the killing or the slaying of God's people. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, except in one place, this word refers to what is done either to Christ or to His people. The one exception is where a creature is imitating Christ. And we'll get there in chapter 13. But not only in Revelation, in 1 John 3.12, this is the word, this Greek word is used to describe Cain's slaughter of righteous Abel. Paul in Romans 8 says we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. It's the same root word there. The rider on this red horse is coming to kill God's people. It's the exact word and people who are described in the fifth seal. Next, in verses 5 and 6, a black horse comes with scales in his hands. And if the prior horseman was physical persecution... This horseman brings economic persecution. It's amazing how often economics comes up as a, as a matter of persecution in the Scriptures. It's all over the place, and maybe it stands out more to us now because it's becoming more and more common in our day. But you know, when we look at the church in Thyatira, when we look there, we saw a church that was tempted to compromise for the sake of economic gain. Go to the temples 
offer the sacrifices, participate in the idolatry, participate in the immorality, keep the gods happy, the trade gods, and things will go well for you. Well, just last week in France, there was a man who, thankfully, he won a wrongful dismissal suit. He had been fired. Specifically, uh, the reason why he was fired was for professional incompetence, allegedly for failing to adhere to the firm that he was a part of, their values of being welcoming and being fun, which he included was... Uh, in his statement included excessive drinking and sexually charged icebreakers. This is what the man was fired for. He refused to participate in these things. He said, I'm not going to get drunk with everybody. I'm not going to participate in this promiscuous activity. And he was fired for not adhering to the company's values, specifically their value of fun. And you think, well, yeah, at least he won seven, <laughs> seven years later. Seven years where he couldn't get a job in his field because of a bad resume. And before you say, oh, there has to be more to it than that, look, are you really surprised by this kind of thing? As a Christian, you shouldn't be. This kind of thing has been happening from the very beginning. It's been happening for thousands of years to the Lord's people. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And one of the ways they're persecuted is they're cut off from commercial endeavors. And that's what the black horse brings. It's not famine. Famine comes in the fourth. And you see here, food is available. And it's not starvation either. A day's worth of bread costs a full day's wage. But the coarser, less desirable barley bread is affordable. One could feed a family meagerly with it. And this is a picture of poverty. It's economic hardship brought upon the followers of Christ. And that's the point. A certain class of people are going to be able to afford wheat. And a certain class of people will not be able to afford it. And those who are able to afford it will also be able to afford oil and wine, the luxury items. Their prices aren't inflated at all. They're not touched. They're in plentiful supply, but, but a man concerned with the bare necessities can't afford to even think about those luxuries. And the point here is that being a Christian and following the Lord victorious will lead to economic difficulty. This is elsewhere clear in the book of Revelation. Following Christ will cost you. will cost you comforts, will cost you promotions, will cost you jobs or careers or opportunities. And this happens to believers specifically because they are believers. You know, in the 80s, in, 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 uh, in the United States especially, there was the Red Scare uh, where, where everyone was uh, uh, really concerned about communism and communist spies. And one of the questions they would ask was, uh, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And if the answer was yes, then this person was blacklisted. There may come a time where you will find yourselves having to answer a similar question. Where you, are you or have you ever been a part of an evangelical church. You've got to prepare yourself for that in advance so that you know how to answer. Lastly, a pale horse. And this horse is the one that is given the power of death. And Hades comes behind it to swallow up those who are killed. And it's different from the other two. The other two come together. They are 
persecutors of God's people. The work of one is, is described, uh, the work of this one is described more generally. He kills, not slaughters. He brings famine, not poverty. He brings pestilence and he brings wild beasts. Now this is a reference to Ezekiel 14 where God sends these exact same things, killing, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. He sends them as judgments upon the entire world for their sin and then narrows in on His people for their purification. They're in the world, all over the world, and in the world they're accomplishing God's purpose of of uh, punishing sin, and in the church they're accomplishing His purpose among His people of purification. And that helps us to see that in this seal, the horse is not only directed against the church, but against the world in general. There will be wars and famines and pestilence and wild beasts, and they will affect everyone. And sometimes believers will be caught up in these disasters and killed by them. There are Christians in war zones right now And some of them are going to be killed. There are Christians who are sick right now who are not going to get better. There are Christians who are running out of food somewhere in the world this moment. That's why uh, and what it means to live in a fallen world, in a fallen and a godless world. These things happen. There will be trouble. The earth, we're told, groans as it awaits the, the, the redemption that the Lord will bring. And Christians will endure the same trials as their unbelieving neighbors. But thankfully, not everyone will all the time. A quarter of the earth is afflicted. These things aren't happening everywhere. They're not even happening half of everywhere. 75% of the people are not enduring them. And that's not to give us an exact percentage of what's going on here, but it reminds us that even though these things happen, they aren't all the time and they aren't every place. They're severe and they're grave, but they are limited. And that's what these four horsemen represent. Christ's kingdom, His people advancing and conquering, the suffering they will encounter as they do. They'll be persecuted. They'll be oppressed commercially. And they will endure those calamities that afflict a fallen world. And it's not until we leave this world we will, will we have peace. It's first the suffering, then the glory. And we need to be ready to endure those things so that we won't be disappointed. We need to be able to agree with the apostle when he says... Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. These things aren't strange. They're part of God's plan. It's part and parcel with life in a world that is fallen and groaning. But it's not the end. And so you see, this is not some time in the future that's going to come. These horsemen are riding through the earth right now. One advancing a kingdom, two opposing it, and one bringing famine and war and sickness and death. They represent the present evil age and the suffering in it, and Jesus is not bringing it to an end immediately. And you wonder, well, why does the Lord allow this? Why does He do it this way? He actually gives us a glimpse of this in the fifth seal. He gives us a glimpse into the reason why. In verses 9, 10, and 11. 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The fifth seal is opened and our attention is sent back into heaven and there we see an altar before the throne and there in front of the altar are the martyrs, those who were slain for the witness that they bore. And we see that and we think, what a wonderful group of people. They were faithful to the end. They endured all the, the stampeding of the horsemen. They overcame and now they're at rest. They're content. They're enjoying the, the beatific vision, the vision of God. Well, I don't mean to say that heaven isn't restful, but these saints are not content. They are restless. They recognize that there is still much to be done. I mean, for one, they know that their being in heaven is not the end of the story. They're waiting to inherit the new earth. And so they're asking God to fulfill, the, bring about the end and give them what was promised. But more explicitly, and maybe surprising, they are praying, which is what they're doing. They're speaking to God and they are praying that He will judge their enemies and avenge their blood. They are lamenting that God is taking so long to bring judgment on those who made them suffer so greatly. They're asking for the blood of those who are worldly and who do not love the Lord. And by the way, this proves that the horsemen were not apocalyptic judgments because the saints in heaven are wondering how long before this judgment happens. And so they recognize at least that final judgment hasn't begun yet. It will and you'll all recognize it soon. But the first four seals were not it. They all happened on the earth. This time, uh, they happened in, in time, temporally. But now we're in heaven. And now we're, we're speaking of cosmic judgment. And all the saints cry out, How long, O Lord, does this misery have to continue? How long does injustice in the world have to go on? How long will they put us to death because of our faith in Christ? How long before God you will make them answer? And you know, God doesn't mind us expressing our frustrations over sin in the world and even over sin against us. Now, He wants us to respond in certain ways towards our enemies. He wants us to love them. But when we come to Him, we have the liberty to pray the same prayer and ask, How long, O Lord? This is a common lament in the Psalms. And I won't take you to all of them. There are, there are too many to count. But one that comes to mind, very similar to the lament in heaven of the saints, is Psalm 94. You can turn to Psalm 94 and, and take a look. And uh, You know, one of the reasons why I love the Psalms and we should spend time in the Psalms and sing the Psalms is because they really give us an idea of the limits and the boundaries to where we ought to pray. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to think, well, I, I couldn't possi possibly pray like this. 
Well, no, the psalmist gives us every warrant to pray this way. These are the prayers and the songs of the saints. In Psalm 94, verse 1, it begins, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widows and the sojourner, and they murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. The last verse, verse 23. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. You know, I often tell this story, but I was in Washington, D.C. when Osama bin Laden was killed. And when Osama bin Laden was killed, when it, it came on every... It doesn't matter what program was on the TV, breaking news, the president has an announcement, and Barack Obama came forward and said, uh, confirmed to the nation that Osama bin Laden had been found and had been identified and had been killed. When that happened, the entire city erupted spontaneously in celebration. People would, you know, would scribble USA on, on, Bill, on uh, Bristol board and they would go out into the streets and they were waving it around. And they all went to the White House and were cheering and, and singing songs. And there was great celebration in the capital because Osama bin Laden, this wicked man, had been rid from the earth. But there were some people at the Bible college who were almost weeping and were saddened that Osama bin Laden had been killed and went to hell. And I saw them doing this and I thought to myself, what a shallow view of love and justice. It doesn't understand love or justice. Because listen, listen folks, it is good to long for justice. It is a good thing, you see it in the Scriptures, to want righteousness to be done. And it's also possible to rejoice in justice being served without rejoicing that people made in God's image are being destroyed. This brings up a point of tension amongst believers, doesn't it? How do we square this kind of praying that we see in Psalm 94, that we see in Revelation? How do we square this kind of praying with love your enemies? Well, we know it's possible to go too far with love. I mean, how many times have, have you yourself lamented, everything is always about love, but I, I know there's more to God than this. Well, that sentiment is real and it identifies a, a serious problem, but the the problem actually is not an overemphasis on God's love. The problem is a corruption of God's love. God is love, but He is the one who defines what that love looks like, and He is the one who tells us what He loves. Those things are defined according to His Word, not with human definitions. And, and what often happens is the love of God is presented as, as just a, a super version of our own. But it isn't that at all. Does God love humanity? Yes. Does He delight to destroy people? No. But He also perfectly loves 
righteousness. And since God loves what is righteous, He must hate what is evil and bring justice against it. Always keep that in mind. Judgment is based on righteousness. And a longing to see justice done in the Bible is a characteristic of the righteous, not of the wicked. Those who long for justice in the Scriptures are always identified as righteous. I mean, what do you think of leaders who act unjustly? What do you think of politicians and judges who distort the law or who rule based on public opinion? Is that good? Uh, don't you get angry? Don't you get outraged by injustice? Biblical injustice? That's a righteous response. You know, in Luke 18, 17, we're told that the elect cry out day and night for justice, and God will give it, and they're commended for it. God says, keep praying for, for it, because I will give it. It's good to pray that God does justice in the world. Listen, there, there was no weeping over Judas when he went out and took his own life. In fact, every time the Gospel writers consider Judas... They're writing about him long after his betrayal and death. Every time they do it, it's always with derision, not sadness. They give the list of the apostles. It gets to the end. Judas, parentheses, who betrayed our Lord. When the, money, uh, when the ointment is broken and poured over, over Jesus' feet, and some of the disciples protest and say, it could have been sold and given to the poor. It says, Judas said this, Parenthesis, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and would steal. The Bible says nothing good about Judas. Of course, things would have been different had he repented, but he didn't. And of course, Christ was, listen, kind to him. He was, and that's the model for how we treat our enemies with kindness in treating them, begging them to reconsider their ways and be reconciled to God. We do that, but not at an expense or a desire for justice. Imagine Peter weeping over the death of Judas, or Abraham over the destruction of Sodom, or Joshua over the conquest of Canaan. It wouldn't be right, would it? It's not appropriate to weep and wail when justice and righteousness is done. And as for loving them, look, once a person dies and goes to be before the Lord, you can't love them anymore, at least not in the sense of doing good to them. You may cherish the thought of a, of a grandparent who has passed, but there's nothing you can do to show them love anymore. And when a man or a woman dies and goes to stand before the Lord, all there is now is to know that justice will be done. It's not in our hands anymore. There's nothing we can do. Now it's in the hands of Him who judges justly. And love for righteousness compels us to rejoice that what is right will come to pass. We, we can't love righteousness more than people and so despise them. And we cannot love people more than righteousness and so despise righteousness. Listen again, that doesn't negate calling the wicked to repentance. Right in Psalm 94 that we just read, there is a call in the middle of the psalm for the wicked to repent. There's a call for the wicked to recognize their foolishness and the danger that they're in. 
One day there will be judgment, but today for them it's a day of salvation. And if they would turn from their foolishness and turn from their evil and come to the Lord, they would be spared. But they don't. And the last thing they hear as the judge sends them away is the applauding approval of all creation. We can rejoice that justice is being served and we can rejoice when one sinner repents. They aren't mutually exclusive. The Lord delights in justice and the Lord delights to save. And there is a glimpse of that delight in verse 11. There is a reminder there that some are yet to come. And in that verse, the reason God gives for justice being delayed is for the full number of those who are to be martyred, to be killed, to come in. But the implication there is that some are still to be saved, right? You can't have more martyrs without having more believers. And some of those people who are persecuting the church, they will turn and they will join the saints like Paul the Apostle did. And for their sake, God delays judgment. I mean, just imagine if when God heard the cry of the psalmist, you know, however many years ago that was, imagine He granted their prayer in their lifetime. You and I wouldn't be here. We would not know the Lord. We would not even exist. History continued so that you and I would be born and come to faith and know Him. But the problem with history continuing is that here there is misery and sinfulness and hardship and even martyrdom for some of God's most faithful people. And so there's a reason why history goes on. Sin is endured. Suffering continues. It is so that the full number of God's people can be brought in. So that people from every tongue and tribe and nation will be brought in. You know, there are places in the world right now, right now, where groups of people are hearing for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never heard it before for 2,000 years. You know, if God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah for the sake of ten righteous people, then would He spare the whole world for the sake of a tribe that has not yet heard? Or in China? China, the, China never had a large Christian population. Just a, a few believers here and there from about the year 300 till 1840. Now there are possibly, probably, as many Christians in China as there are people in Canada. And if God had come earlier, what would have become of them? How would those saints have made it to the throne room of God so that that throne would be surrounded by people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation? No, for our salvation and for His glory, history continues. I think of Matthew 24, 14. And the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so this is the fifth seal. Really, it's explaining to God's people why the righteous suffer. What is it all about? It's for the advancing of His kingdom in the world. Just as Christ suffered to inaugurate it, we, His people, must not mind a little suffering to, ad to advance it. We can suffer until it's complete. There is a, a greater purpose in God's plan than our comfort. It's the salvation of men and women and children from every far-flung place in this globe. Nevertheless, the prayer for these saints, their crying out for justice, is not ignored or denied. 
it's only delayed until the Lord's mission is complete. Every prayer that the psalmists raise up for justice one day will be fulfilled. Every prayer that you have ever lifted up for righteous vengeance will be answered at the appropriate hour. And when that hour comes, we are assured justice will be done and it will be done perfectly. It will roll down, Amos tells us, like an ever-flowing tide. And not only will it come in verse 11, we're told it will be in just a little while. And in a very little while, it does come. Verses 12 through 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The stars vanished like a scroll that is being rolled, or the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us to hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Everyone immediately recognizes this as the beginning of final judgment. And it reminds us again that this book is not in chronological order. It's the same event from seven different perspectives. And this perspective is from the suffering church. This judgment is what the, the martyrs in heaven were praying for. And now with the opening of the sixth seal, it begins. But it's only the first part of the seal. There are two others in chapter 7. This part ends abruptly with those being judged. They cry out, who can stand on the great day of the Lord's wrath? It's a question that's going to be answered in chapter 7 when you see a great multitude described as standing before the throne. But the focus here really is on the terror of the judged. Just as they terrorized God's people, so too they will be made afraid. It begins with an earthquake, and every time an earthquake is mentioned in the book of Revelation, it means judgment day has arrived. And it's not just a, a temporary thing. We're not talking about some crisis that will, will pass away. You know, if you, if you uh, bunker down and, and dig in, you can escape it. No, here all creation is being dissolved. The old is passing away, the new is about to arrive, and there between the two is the judgment on the wicked. It could not be presented in more frightening terms, could it? The sun stops shining. The moon becomes like blood. Stars fall to the earth. The skies are rolled back like a scroll. And every mountain and island is removed. And this isn't a, this isn't a physical description of what will happen. That's impossible. Stars can't fall to the earth. This is what Peter speaks of when he says, the whole created order is going to dissolve and be melted away. That's the picture you have here. Creation itself is being undone. And if the ground beneath your feet is dissolving, where can you hide? There's nowhere. But you get the picture of people, they flee into a cave and the cave evaporates around them, turns into dust. 
They call out for the mountains to crush them so they're not going to have to face the Lord, but the mountains break apart and float away. Everyone knows at this point. Everyone around. You don't want to be around for this day. Because everyone who is knows this is too late. There is nowhere to hide. The Lord has come. The kings of the earth, the mightiest rulers, those like Nero who sent out their edicts and their decrees, sometimes to exterminate the Christians. They are the first in the list. Those who oppose God and oppose the truth and and not only call good evil and evil good, but who enshrine what is evil in law. They run, but there's nowhere they can hide. And then the great ones, the, the counselors, advisors, senators, congressmen, noblemen, all those who reinforce the will of the king and oppose the Lord, there they are. And they're going to have to answer for every law they've ever passed and for every evil they've endorsed. After them, the generals, those who in times past could hold an entire nation hostage for their own personal gain. Those who very often would be the agents who carried out the king's wishes, persecuting the people of God, cutting them down with the sword. They're next, followed by the rich and powerful, the businessmen, the the CEOs, the billionaires who loved their money more than their own lives and oppressed the church and condemned what was righteous in order to get it. They'll have to answer for every dollar that they've gained. And you might expect at this point people to start to cheer. Get them, God. They served only themselves. They're, they're fools leading these nations. God, get the greedy. Get the rich. It's not hard to imagine someone with a, a bumper sticker aimed at our prime minister cheering when he cannot find a place to hide. Or maybe a member of the Socialist Party delighted to see the rich and the powerful cowering. And that's how people think it is, isn't it? Judgment is only for the influential. Judgment is only for the powerful, only for the privileged, only for those with great crimes to their names, only for those who have made people like me suffer. Those are the ones who are going to get judged. It's amazing if you, uh, if you ever speak to prisoners sharing the gospel, whenever it gets to sin, the answer is always, yeah, but. Oh uh, yeah, I may have lied on my taxes, but I didn't rob a bank. Uh, Yeah, I may have robbed a bank, but at least I didn't beat my wife. Well, yeah, I may have abused my wife, but at least I'm not a murderer. Well, yeah, I'm a murderer, but at least I'm not a child molester. And it just goes on and on because there's always someone else to point the finger at and say, at least I'm not like them. They deserve it more. And and people live and act as though because there is someone worse than me, I am exempt and that judgment is only reserved for the lowest of the low. No, no. It's not only those with great sins who will be judged. It's not only those who are given much who will be held to account. It's not only those who are mighty or powerful or who had great capacity for sin. Judgment comes for all who have sinned. All the way down from the king to the citizen to the lowliest slave. No one who rejects Christ or insults his church, or sins in any way, will escape this day of the Lord. The high will not be able to legislate it away. The low will not be able to claim mitigating circumstances. The great will not be able to stand and face him. And the weak will not find anywhere to hide. 
The rich will not be able to buy their way out, and the poor will receive no pity. All are going to have to give an account before the judgment seat of Christ on that day. And the Lord will bring justice on all mankind for everything down to every idle word that they have spoken. The Lord will bring and demand a reckoning. And only ones who will be able to stand are those who have put their trust in Christ and received white robes from Him. Let me end by speaking to people who are here who I'm sure do not know the Lord. Because I am sure there are some here who would say, no, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I just came because I was invited with a friend. I thought I'd check things out. Let me talk to you for a moment this morning. I want to know, have you ever looked at the sin in the world and all of the things going on and said, how can there be a God who would allow suffering like this? How can there be a God when bad things happen all the time? Do you know why this world, fallen and sinful as it is, is permitted to go on another day? Why the Lord allows His children to suffer and to die and to be mistreated in the world as they advance the kingdom? Why God doesn't come and put an end to it all immediately? He is doing it for your sake. He is doing it for those of you who have not trusted and believed in Him and worship Him. He's doing it so that you could have time to repent and turn from your sin and turn to Him and join that great multitude singing praises before the throne. You're not going to be destroyed. You're not going to be in dread when the Lamb comes. Life continues so that when you see Him, you can rush towards Him in thanksgiving, not cower in fear. Listen, there are only two outcomes in the end. There are only two sides. Those on His right and those on His left. One will be forever thankful and the other forever forsaken. You know, often you will hear a person who believes the words of Christ and believes in God and, and what He said, told that they're on the wrong side of history. Nothing could be further from the truth. History is going to bear this out. History will vindicate God. There is a right side and there is a wrong side. And that right side is the, on the side of God and of Christ, the suffering servant, the slain lamb, and the conquering king. And the question you need to answer, seriously, is which side are you on? When the day comes, it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. When that comes for you, will you be standing before the Lord? Or will you be crying out for the caves and the mountains to fall on you and hide you from the wrath of the Lamb? This book is a blessing to God's people by preparing them for what they will face. But it's also a blessing because it's a warning. It isn't often in the book of Revelation you see people repent. You see them harden their hearts against the Lord and against His gospel. You see them acting as if they begrudged even a single drop of His mercy and grace. They, they treat it like a lethal poison in this book. They'd rather die forever than live with Him. Well, don't be one of them. This is the day. This is the time. This is the hour of salvation. So stop resisting the Spirit of God and surrender your life to Him so that when He comes, and He will come, 
You can greet Him with joy and thanksgiving, and you can meet Him unafraid. It'll be the greatest day of your life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would grant people repentance and faith, that they would believe, that they wouldn't have to endure what so many will endure. I thank You that You brought them here this morning to hear a message, Lord, a warning. Lord, warnings are precious. Warnings are precious. If I was driving down the road and a bridge was out, a sign telling me of the danger I was headed towards would be a great blessing. And so, Lord, I pray that everyone here would believe the direction that this world is heading to be dissolved as if by fire and that we would all live accordingly, that Your people would know the end, the glory You will receive, the places You are leading them, and that they would be strong in the Lord, prepared to march forward. Lord, where You lead, we will follow. Help us to be able to believe it and to say it with confidence. And Lord, for those who do not know You, that they would respond accordingly. Judgment will come. And who will stand? Only those who have placed their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who will stand before Your throne. And we thank You, Lord, that You have sent Your Son as a propitiation for our sins so that we can be clothed in righteousness, so that our sins can be forgiven. And I pray, Lord, that You would apply that to all of those here this morning who do not know You, that they would join Your people and be counted as part of that great multitude singing praises to the Lamb and Him who sits upon the throne. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.